Okay, so today I'm on a Zoom call with in to Australia, in Byron Bay, no less, with uh, Peter Lawrence. Uh, Peter, for the people at home that may not be familiar with you, uh, can you describe what you do for a living? I can. I've been a professional gambler one way or the other since I was probably about, well, definitely professionally since I was 25. I, around that time, became a bookmaker. But um, since I was a very young uh, boy, I was going to the races with my father. From the time I was about 16, I read a lot of books on punting and how to win at punting. And with that naive optimism that you have when you're a teenager, I was uh, sure that I was going to make a success of it. So I've been trying to actually turn a profit and win at the races since I was 16. Okay, so how long from when you were 16 did it take you to actually turn a profit? Well, I can remember my father, um, even when I was younger than that, it's going to sound like a crazy story, but when I grew up in Australia, racing was just very, very big. It was always the back page of the sport of the um daily newspapers the sport would be full of racing i i was actually born in the uk and i've spent a little time a bit of time living there so where in the uk it would always be the football that was the dominant thing in the sports pages here it was always racing and everyone went to the races and so i was betting getting my father to put bets on for me from a, a young age, probably I won't even say how young, but at one, I remember one year he said, I want you to keep a list of all the bets you have during the year. And I was probably 14 or 15. And I'm going to prove to you at the end of the year, you can't win. And I did actually show a profit even at that time, which would definitely have been more luck than necessarily good management but I do think that some people do have an innate um, feeling for what they're looking for and and I did spend a lot of time thinking about racing and you know as I say you know trying to read as many articles even in those days magazine articles books on how that might be possible and, and that was... lot of confidence in my own ability for some reason what was there um, an element of form study or sort of basically basic picking winners that you suddenly had a eureka moment? Ah, this is the this is the bit. Well, when, it, it, again, when I was quite a young boy, I read a um, there was a weekly publication, might have been monthly publication here called. Now I'm trying to think of what it was called racetrack and it one at one time they published a whole series of um what we would now think of as sort of par times for different distances at all the major courses in sydney and melbourne and in that time not many people really talked about the times of races in australia it wasn't a big factor so i i spent quite a I probably spent a couple of years trying to work out using those sort of rudimentary graphs 
on what would be how to pick winners just using times. And then, so then I, when I was about 16, a book came out in Australia called Winning by Don Scott, who's like the Phil Bull of Australian punting. He was a famous punter and had, they had a betting syndicate called Legal Eagles and he wrote a book called Winning. And it was all about using weight ratings and class tables. And so right from them, I right from that time, I tried to marry those two ideas up using the Don Scott um, weight and rating tables that he had in his book and also trying to incorporate some of the time figures that I'd been thinking about and working on. And I continued to do that for the next forever. I'm still using a, a not dissimilar sort of thing. And in fact, I did actually have a time working for uh, Don Scott when I was about uh, 18 or 19. So that was great. Did you, as, as you were, you know, becoming a successful punter, did you meet yeah. other successful punters that gave you even more hope or confidence that there were people out there beating the books? Not so much in those earlier days. And obviously I was doing other things. I was going to school. I was had a job and whatever else. But when I decided to um, really make that my career, and originally what I did was I also, I became a bookmaker when I was about 25 years old. And I was living in Canberra at the time. And the Canberra ring was very big. There was 28 odd bookmakers that would race every Saturday. And um, I did at that time, actually meet uh, Rob Waterhouse. And he's been a really terrific mentor for me. And through that association over a long time now, 35 years, I've, of course, met other successful punters. And so I know that there's a number of them out there. And also in those, in those days in Australia, and particularly before the internet, and most particularly before the... Unfortunately, the British corporates got a foothold in Australia. The betting ring was an incredibly dynamic place. And why why did you decide to become a bookmaker when you were doing so well as being a punter? Well, the most I guess in the, in those days, the most famous punters were bookmakers. There was Rob Waterhouse, there was Mark Reed, and there was a, a, like a a saying that was that you'd be an opinion bookmaker. So really you were punting through the book. And as I say, it was a, a, a different environment to the betting shop environment that you have in the UK, where the, I guess the boldest and the most opinionated people at that time were bookies challenging the punters to pit their wits against them and you had the advantage of having the percentage on your board rather than being, being against the percentage. You said, you said, Rob Waterhouse put us together for, for this interview. You said he was sort of a, a mentor to you. What, what did he, what was the most important thing he taught you? 
Rob was the first person I'd ever met who um, used to talk about the what now is a common thing talked about in Australia, uh, the SP profile. And he would also do a, a market after the race on what price you would take it if that race was run again tomorrow, which to me seemed an ex like a sort of bizarre concept. But um, it's, it, that has probably become the dominant idea in setting early markets in Australia, what price the horse was last start. And I'd never really even considered that to be uh, a factor that you would be looking at. What what would you say, and I don't expect you to give all your secrets away, but what would you say your edge is at the moment? I think I think that many, I think, you, so I think for British people who are, who are listening or watching, it's important to sort of know that Australia has undergone a really dramatic change in the last 20 years, and in particularly the last 15, since the British corporates came and got a foothold. So the edge that I would have had in my mind in the late 80s and the 90s was I would have thought I was a better judge than the market. And I was prepared to pit my wits against the other players in the market. As, as the corporates have taken such a big hold here and Betfair has become so dominant, that's a much more difficult thing to achieve in 2023. You're really pitting your wits against the very smartest people in the world if you're pitting your wits in the last 20 minutes of, of betting because it's really a reflection of Betfair and Betfair is a reflection of the smartest people. So... I would say today the edge for me is trying to beat the market in those few days leading up to actually race day where you're still pitting yourself against the opinion of those bookmakers rather than the opinion of the of the other of the other punters so early betting betting on a Wednesday for Saturday's races in Australia or a Thursday there's so you, definitely an edge there if you know what you're doing. You've had to evolve, obviously, over the years to keep ahead of to keep ahead of the game. Do you be a bit more specific? Do you specialise in any way in your betting? It's it evolving is exactly right. So when the internet came in, I could see the so a couple of things happened almost in tandem in Australia. The internet came, casinos began to be licensed. And um, poker machines became very, very uh, prevalent in clubs and pubs in Australia in the early 2000s. Um, the result of that was there was a dramatic drop off in race course attendance. And I stopped then being a bookmaker in about 2003 or four or five, somewhere around there. And then and I've just been a professional gambler ever since um, I, I 
I specialize, I guess, in in bigger race meetings rather than the smaller country and, and provincial race meetings. That's where I focus most of my attention. And why would that be? Well, I read an important book um, by Tim Ferriss, which was called The Four-Hour Workweek, which is a, a, a funny old concept, but in that he was really promoting the idea of the 80-20 principle, that 80% of your income will come from 20% of your effort, and that people spend an enormous amount of time trying to make that extra 20%, and you really need to focus on the 20% that brings the 80% of your income. And I did use to bet every day and bet much more often than I do now. And I realised that the the majority of my profit came certainly from, in Australia, the two big race days are Saturdays and Wednesdays. So I focused on that. Okay, Peter. So you talked about the 80-20. Uh, it sounds like a book I need to read that, actually. Um, so how many races a day would you put a line through before even looking at the form? So what I would do um, for a Saturday, in a, in I, there's the four main centres for Saturday racing in Australia are in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Adelaide. I go through each race quickly so I have a, a computer, a database. I do an auto-selecting thing where it comes up with its own ideas. And then I go through each horse and just very quickly run through each horse, give them whatever improvement I think they should be making, been in sort of fast mode, fast forward. And then I, if there's too many variables, too much unknowns, too many horses burst up, too many horses that have got great old form but are out of form, but they could come back to form. If I just feel the race is too messy, I throw it away. And then so in all those four centres at the moment, they're doing having 10 races a day. So out of those 40 races that I initially go through, I'd probably get them down to 30 or maybe uh, 25 that I have a a much a, a deeper look into and do the form. I still do the form in a very sort of, I, I'm, I don't have the computer model that some of the big teams have got in that same way. I still do it all using my own brain, going through each horse, trying to look at the over all the variables that I'm interested in and then set a market myself on what price I think each horse should be. And then with those, say, 20 to 25 races that I've got there, I uncover the early market and look for the discrepancies or if it's too close to what I'm thinking, I'll pay less attention. I go and look at the horses where I think where the market has them much shorter than I do and see where I might, might, might have made a mistake. And then at the end of that, I have a series of races, maybe 15 where I think that there's an edge that I can work on. Okay. You, so within those big racing centres that you concentrate on, are there any types of races that you immediately put a line through? 
in um, Sydney, they have these uh, races which are restricted to horses that are trained outside the metropolitan and provincial area for country horses. I, I pretty well put a line through those races. They're called highway handicaps. I put a I I put a line. I do also do some betting at the provincials on the Victorian races. And I put a line through uh, maiden races where every horse is coming out of what I would consider a substandard maiden. So even if there appears to be an edge there, I've found over the years that a poor horse, a, 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 a fair horse coming out of a poor race is a poor bet going forward, even if the, all the other horses look to be even worse. Uh, you, you, sorry, carry on. So I'm always, and I'm even in the even in the other class of races, I'm conscious of having a a particular rating that would indicate that the horse I'm backing is coming out of a better than average class, a better than average race for that class. Okay, now you're a racehorse owner. Has owning horses changed the way you bet, or has it changed a little bit your you know, you sort of insight or enhanced it? When when I first started owning horses, I um, there was a very famous book. I moved to the Gold Coast when I was um, a bookmaker, which was at one stage the biggest uh, betting ring in Australia. And I was fortunate enough to be betting there uh, on the rails next to a man called Laurie Bricknell, who I think was probably the biggest bookmaker in the world. And we struck up a great friendship and we owned a whole lot of horses together, mares and racehorses, which we bought as yearlings. And in that initial enthusiasm, I did used to bet far too much on the horses that I owned, but I I tempered that down over the years and don't really do that at all anymore. You had a, a Melbourne Cup pot pot at one point. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be involved in the ownership of a horse called Incentivize, who went from winning a um, a maiden race in the country in Queensland to winning his next eight starts. And in three of them in Brisbane, he won by over 10 lengths. And then he went to Melbourne and won uh, two Group 1 races and then won the Caulfield Cup by more than four lengths. And he actually started favourite in the Melbourne Cup uh, two years ago now and was the shortest price favourite since Barlow. I've got to ask what? <laughs> I've actually got a video because it was during it was during the COVID lockdown in Victoria and I wasn't allowed to go and watch him. And I had a little party here and we watched the race and and somebody videoed and as the winner went roaring on by... There's a video of me sort of collapsing on the couch. So him winning the Caulfield Cup was my best moment in racing. And watching him get past in the Melbourne Cup was, uh, it wasn't like the worst moment, but it was definitely a disappointment. Now, are you plus or minus in racehorse owning? Look, I'm definitely minus, but in the last half a dozen horses I've bought, I'm definitely a long way ahead. And what I did was I pivoted away completely from buying yearlings and started buying 
uh, tried horses, which has been been much more successful. Okay, right. But back to your punting. Um, you've already talked about how much work goes into each day. Sounds like a colossal amount of work. Um, do you ever sort of liaise with other pro punters now to put your heads together to come up with selections? Or are you purely self self contained? No, I do. I have a number of um, very smart people who I talk with on Friday, like before the races on Saturday, on Friday afternoon and on Saturday morning. And we share our thoughts and I'm sure they take some notice of what I think and I take some notice of what they think. And I find it um, good for if I'm slightly ambivalent over what I should do in in a particular race or if I've got you know horse a three to one and everyone else is and it's eight to one in the market and I'm and somebody else likes it as well it gives me a bit more confidence but if everyone else I'm talking to hates it I'll probably second guess myself and and not bet quite as much but I do definitely have a team of people that I talk to about the races yeah Okay, if people like watching these videos and you know, to sort of learn from the, the professionals. So what would what would you consider the most important aspect of summing up a race to find a winner? That's a very good question. I'm not sure if I could nail it down to just one specific thing, and I'm not sure whether they would be the same uh, the same situation in the UK, but for me, I'm looking always for a horse that's come out of a stronger than average and sometimes a much stronger than average race off my markings and that is early in its campaign and has had less than 16 starts, let's say, early in its campaign. I love horses that are third up in Australia that have had two runs. They seem to be going forward, that you can improve them again. They're coming out of a strong race. I like backing horses generally that race on the speed, particularly in races where they're going to not necessarily, um, I'm not saying the drawing wide's bad or whatever else, but it seems like they're going to get into the right position in the run, be advantaged on the speed. They've got the best form in my eyes. I'm probably looking mainly for that. Okay, now you've said that you uh, you get together with um, other pro punters. Do you pay any heed at all to inside information? Yep. No, I do. I, I have a, a couple of the people I speak to have, you know, uh, connections with racehorse owners or one particular good friend of mine has some trackmen who go to the track and time the horses and... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not one of those people who goes just ignore all sort all sorts of in, inside information. So, yep, I I don't think it's I I'm not a, I'm not averse to the uh, listening to the racecourse whispers. I suppose they're it depends. Often, on, they're often right. Depends where the whisper comes from, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, how many bets would you average a day when you're betting? On a Saturday, I would probably average um, 20 to 30 bets, I guess. Sometimes I'm backing two or three runners in a race, sometimes more than that. I used to definitely bet a lot more than I am now. 
um, on more races and have more bets. But again, that was in a, a different world where it was e easier to beat the market. I think you definitely have to be more selective now. And you're, pri you're price dependent on your bets. Definitely price dependent for sure. So where where do you stand when you when you when you make something a five to one chance, and it's taking a massive walk in the market? It's out to say sixteen. Would you have more on, or would you be cautious? No, I wouldn't have more on. I and it would depend on the individual situation. I wouldn't. Um, I certainly wouldn't not back it at all. But if it was first up in that situation and it had drifted dramatically in the market, I would probably take heed of that and reduce my bet. And I would take the attitude there, well, you're going to win both ways. If it wins, you'll still be happy. You're getting 16s about the horse you thought you were going to get, let's say, 8 to 1. It's gone from 8s to 16s. So if you halve your bet, you're still going to win the same and you've saved half your stake. So, But I wouldn't... I, I think that the... I think the most misunderstood aspect of punting and the one area that just is not really talked a lot about by people is the emotional and psychological aspect of it. And so if you don't back that horse at all and it wins, it's it's a blow and you can get you on the wrong leg. So a lot of, I think a, a very important part of punting and trying to make a success of it is to make sure you keep in check that emotional and psychological part, definitely. Okay, now you, you were a racecourse bookmaker. Do you still go racing? Look, I'm, um, it's a tragedy to say I, I virtually never go to the track anymore. Unfortunately, I think in the modern world, racing is a great sport to watch on TV. I've got a beautiful office set up. I've got all the screens that I need. I can bet with online with 30 bookmakers and the the vibrancy that once was the race course in Australia has gone. It used to be all those smart minds that I would I'll talk to on the phone. They would all be there. There'd be lots of people with differing opinions. There'd be a tremendous excitement, but it's a it's like a ghost town now in Australia. Terrible to hear, isn't it? Uh, just two more. If we talk about how you get on, you're betting in the next part. But just briefly, do you bet into pools and do exotics and that sort of thing? I don't do that anymore. I used to do a, a bit of it, but I think that the value has gone out of those exotic pools in Australia now. Yeah. It's so well fished by the giant syndicates that it's virtually, you're getting exactly the, the price you should be getting. Uh, you still you still own racehorses? I don't have. I oh, know I've got one. I've got one horse at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say, would you go? Would you go racing if it was a runner? <laughs> uh, perhaps I have been known not to go to the races when my horses have been running. So, but I would go. I, I'm not against going, but it's not. It's not nearly the great experience it once was. Peter, you mentioned um, the emotional sort of aspect of betting in the previous part. 
And I'm interested in that because anybody that's ever bet, what they call it in the UK is going on tilt. Everything's going horribly wrong. All of a sudden, you're trying to, you just go mad. You're trying to bash your way out. And that used to be when the bookmaker had the punter then, you know, give him a bit of credit and not allowed anymore. So tell us a bit more about that. What's your your opinion? Well, in Australia, there there used to be a saying, we didn't call it tilting. It would be that people would say, off goes your head and on goes a pumpkin. When you're trying to (laughs) Um, look, I think that uh, uh, my observation is that all a lot of professional punters want to act as if they're just men of steel and that they're not affected by losing runs or losing in a close photo and whatever else. But that I, I'm sure that, A, that's not correct. And there is definitely an emotional aspect to punting, and it doesn't matter who you are. I've had runs where on for a month at a time, I just can't do anything wrong and I feel completely bulletproof. A very good friend of mine who's an excellent judge in Hong Kong, champion hunter, he also, he, and he's in his 60s, he said to me, it's the most amazing game. When you're having a winning run, you just know that you're Superman and you're bulletproof. And when you're having a losing run, you start saying to yourself, I don't know how I ever thought I could win at this. No, no one can ever win at it. Now, there definitely is that psychological and emotional thing. And I read a a book of Nicholas Taleb one time. I can't remember the name of the book, but he was talking about, and he said, even if you have a model that's 93% guaranteed to win on the stock market in a year, in any given in any any given year, there'll be three losing months. You'll have nine winning months, three losing months, even if you're ninety three percent guaranteed to win. And he said the average person can't stomach the three losing months, and that's what I see all the time with people I know who are, say, friends of mine, but they're not professionals. And you give them some tips, and they might win one week and lose the next week, and they can't stand the losing. And that's something that you've really got to guard yourself again because everyone has losing runs. And there'll be a time where uh, what you just were talking about then, where it just seems like the universe has conspired against you and every horse you're backing is getting beaten by a nose or then the next one misses the start. I remember two Saturdays in a row, I backed one of my biggest bets of the day not only the, the jockey didn't fall, he just fell off. It was the horse was racing, say, three wide. And suddenly the jockey had fallen off for no apparent reason. Well, two weeks in a row. And I was having a bad run. It was really like you're going, is God just telling me to stop? So everyone has that. If you pretend you don't have it, you're not being honest. And I, as a as a poor indication into my character, I used to have like about three broken office chairs outside my, I had a ground floor (laughs) office where I used to live and there was a couple of them outside just in pieces. My mother came to visit one time and said, what are these chairs doing? Well, it was when the horse had been beaten in a photo and I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) People would be glad to know that people would be glad (laughs) to know that people like you feel like that as well. (laughs) So there's something you everyone everyone needs to be betting 
within their temperament and within their means. And if you're doing it for fun, don't bet too much. If you're trying to make a profit, just be on guard that there's going to be losing runs and it's going to seem de desolate at times, for sure. Okay, now, something that professional restricted punters in the UK, I would envy, are the fabled rules that in Australia, the bookmakers have to lay people like you to lose a certain amount of money. Um, yes. that in reality, is that good or bad for punters like you? No, it's definitely, it's a positive if we're talking about um, starting from where we were. It's it's crazy. When I first went to the races in, when I was first a bookie in 1980-whatever-it-was, you were compelled in those days, even if you'd just started off and you had a bank of $10,000 to your name, you had to bet in, to lose 1000 and when you went onto the rail, if you went onto a, a, the rails in Canberra in those days to lose 5,000, if you didn't bet someone to lose 10,000, you were considered to be an embarrassment. And there wasn't any, if, if there was, there was no, there was no prospect you could not accept the bet. If you hesitated, they would go and get a betting steward and the steward would make you have the bet. We got to a point in Australia before the minimum bet limit came in where the corporates came in and restricted the betting and and so that some of the jurisdictions have made it so you have to have you have to bet people to lose two thousand dollars, which is such a small amount of money in the context of these billion dollar companies. So it's better than the alternative, which is if you're betting on the sport, let's say, in Australia, and you have any idea of what you're doing, there's no minimum bet, let, uh, bet limit. They can just let you on to win nothing or $5 or $10. So on the major meetings in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, in Australia, certainly on race day, they have to bet you to win $2,000. And there is 30-odd corporate, so or there's probably more of it. You sit there and you you bet under your own name and you can bet with thirty odd to win two grand. Yeah, and, yeah. and that, so for your sort of staking, that would be enough. Yeah, most well, it has to be enough now, and they only they're only compelled to bet you once. So if you took five to two and it's now four to one, you can't back it again at the four to one with that same bookie, but still. And there are there are bookmakers here who will bet you to win more than the two thousand as well. So you can it, it, without an enormous amount of difficulty on a Saturday race meeting or a metropolitan race meeting in Australia, you'd be able to get on to win fifty thousand. Right. Okay. So practical stuff now. People like to know. Do you record all bets on spreadsheets that sort of thing? I. I used to, and I had an excellent program, and just recently it's something's gone wrong with it. So I've reverted to the uh, old sheets of paper, but um, I will get that spreadsheet up and running again, yeah. So, right, okay. yes. Okay, so do you use a betting bank? Have you got a tank that you keep separately just for punting? No, I've never done that. I know a lot. I know some people who do do that but that's never been something that I've done. So I'm not a, 
a Kelly better in I'm betting a certain percentage of my bank on this and it goes up and down. I'm more of an old style punter that goes, I've marked this evens. I've, I'm backing all horses I mark evens to win whatever it is, 10,000 or 20,000 at my price. So if I've got an evens in that instance, I'll have 10,000 on it. If I've got two to one, I'll have 5,000, three, three to one, 3,000 sort of thing. Okay, so, so you've got a sort of a staking plan, but it's your it's your own. Yeah, it's a staking plan that's really um, more to do with what price I have it. And in some ways, I take into account the differential between that price and and what's been bet. Okay, so you're um you're talking in quite big figures there. So have you gone past the stage now where you're where you have to win? I mean, are you comfortable and you're sort of doing this to enhance your wealth rather than having to get enough to pay the mortgage next month? Yeah, what's happened for me is probably in the last um in the last five years I'm betting uh much less than I used to. So at one stage, I really was quite a, a much bigger better than I am now and would win, you know, very large amounts on any given day and but lose large amounts. And I just found that really had, was taking a toll mentally on me. And I just decided that there was no need to keep betting in that, in that fashion. And I've cut it back to probably about a third of what I once was once doing, and I never have any sleepless nights now. So, okay, what's the, what's the question? Yes, <laughs> what's the worst losing run you've ever endured, and how did you cope? We talked about the mental thing. How did you cope with it, apart from throwing chairs out of windows? And <laughs> I've only done that a couple of times, but it has happened. Um, I, I, about four or five years ago in Australia, there was a spring carnival in Melbourne which goes on for a long time, a few, a couple of months, three months maybe. And I think that the average price of the winners over that whole carnival was 12 to 1. And there were there was a couple of consecutive days where I lost 100% on turnover. I didn't get a collect on those Melbourne races, not one collect. And so that, that definitely was my worst run. Yeah. Okay, so do you constantly sort of analyse your bets and try and work out why you made the bad ones? No, I don't. I have a good friend who drives me crazy on a Sunday morning, ringing me up, going, uh, he's a very good punter, but he does love to analyse why he backed such and such and how he should have done it differently. And whereas to me, I, I... I do. I spend a lot of time on the what I would call the back form, so analysing the races that have been run, but I don't really agonise over. I made that mistake because I know Harry Hindsight will tell you all the right horses to back, and it's of not much use going forward. Is being a professional punter you now? I mean, are, are you? Do you enjoy it? Are you happy to? be doing what you're doing or do you see a point where you're going to retire from it and just go and swim in the Byron Bay and watch the whales and stuff well a lot of my friends would say I do far much of that already no I, I look I'm, uh, my partner she often says to me on Saturday morning oh, 
I can tell it's race day because I'm, I've got a real joy of life about me and a real spring in my step. And it's a funny thing. When I was um, working at the Gold Coast, I was there was another bookie on the rails there called Terry Page, and he was a very famous Australian bookie, but he was quite, uh, he was getting on a little bit. And he was a, a tough man and whatever else. And um, I remember on Melbourne Cup Day one day turning up at the races and he said, to, asked me, how did I sleep or something? And I said, not bad. And and he said, I, I can never sleep on, on the night before the Melbourne Cup. I'm always too excited. And you would never have expected. He had a very sort of dour demeanour. But I... I I definitely really love racing and I love betting and I love everything about it. So yeah, it's a, it's quite a big race night here tonight at Mooney Valley and it's the Cox plate tomorrow and it was the Caulfield cup last week. It's a huge races. Then onto the Melbourne cup carnival. No, I, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Last couple, last couple of questions. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Rob Warhouse, who I'm lucky enough to know as well, Mark McCart about you. Do you leave him out? Or do you really about to say, you've got to lay me the two grand, Rob? <laughs> no, I would never leave him out. <laughs> so like, you both like to keep your enemies, in inverted commas, close and vice versa. Is that how it works? Yeah, definitely. definitely. And do you, do you give each other the rub down if you've had him over for a few quid? Is that is that part of the fun? <laughs> no, we... I, we... We, we, I think we have a very open sharing of thoughts and information. We talk every race day and compare markets. And yeah, I, I think that the days of playing with your cards close to your chest have long gone. Okay. And finally, Peter, um, what would your advice be to a punter who just can't make it pay, wants to emulate you, at least just to not maybe be a professional punter, but just do a bit better? How would you tell them to improve their game obviously it's a tricky one you don't know what they're doing wrong but yeah i think that the thing to really understand i think the thing that you to really understand is let's say in australia 95 percent of people lose three percent break square two percent win getting from that losing to the breaking square is where i suspect all the all the hard work is and the grunt work so don't be if you're trying to make a living at it and you're losing, either give it either just go, well, I'm only going to bet five pounds a race and just enjoy my, my have it as a social thing, or just accept it's that you're eking your way close to break square. Once you can get there to improve things, to keep improving, but betting within your means, not getting on the wrong leg not putting on the pumpkin instead of your head, not chasing, just accepting. Like two weeks, for the previous two Saturdays before last Saturday, I couldn't do a thing wrong. Winner after winner, just phenomenal, just fabulous run. Last Saturday, terrible. Now I'm the same person, same sort of form, terrible, terrible day last Saturday. It's a, it's a broad series of bets it's not one day and i know that it's can be terribly depressing when the last race is run and you've done your money and you're going home why did i do that 
but trying to get out on that last race so that you don't have that experience, that is an absolute disaster. So try and look at it in the long stretch rather than focus on too short a time frame. Yeah. Well, on that note, Peter Lawrence, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.